Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Trouble and Strife, a RuneScape audio drama. Written and narrated by Josh Hayes, supported by my wonderful patrons. The ambient music in this episode is composed by Michael Gelfi. Episode 6, Rune Mysteries, Part 2. I was woken by the sun, streaming through the window and creeping into my eyes. And as I blinked and rolled over slowly, I could hear the birds chirping outside. Footsteps pacing to and fro in the corridor, and the soft smell of something delicious floating through the air. The bed was warm, and the covers wrapped around me still. If this was what every morning in Lumbridge Castle was like, I can see why people never wanted to leave. I rolled the covers away and off the edge of the double bed. My body still half full of quickly fading dreams, I yawned and looked around for my pack. It was still on the floor where I'd left it from the night before. I could hardly remember even getting into bed. The nighttime journey to the wizard's tower was vague. I could remember the forest shrouded in shadow. I remember seeing a unicorn. I can remember how excited Cedrador was when he was researching the object I'd given him. I stood up and stretched, arms above my head and my back arched, and I fought the urge to fall back onto the soft bed. I wiped the sleep from my eyes and wandered over to the small dressing table in the corner. It had several drawers in front and a shelf behind, holding various bottles of perfumes and oils, and lying on top was a small circular hand mirror with a wooden frame. Tilting the mirror, I saw my reflection. My hair was a mess, bags under my eyes still. It was nothing a few more wonderful nights sleep wouldn't cure, but unfortunately, those nights would have to wait. For today, I had to head to Varrock. I made the bed as best I could, laying the deep duvet back across the soft mattress, put the mirror back where I'd found it, and picked up my pack from the floor. My trusty pack, battered and torn, with me from the start. I think I held on to the bag for sentimental reasons, but I knew if I was planning on travelling more, journeying through the more remote regions of Gilinor, I would need a new one. I decided I'd have to go shopping for one once I got to Varrock. With the room tidied and my pack secure on my shoulders, I picked up the iron room key and walked out into the castle corridor, shutting the door behind me and twisting the key in the lock. A satisfying click. Horatio had told me to return the key to Hans in the morning, so I kept it in my gripped hand and made my way down the corridor toward the spiral staircase at the end. The corridor seemed different in the daylight. The paintings I'd walked past the night before were now beautifully lit as light streamed in from the glass windows. Landscapes, people and places. Any other day I would have stood for a while and admired, but the excitement of adventure had gripped me. I needed to get Cedrador's letter to Aubrey in Varrock, and I noticed I was walking slightly quicker than normal. Once I reached the stone staircase, I curled my way down to the ground floor, hopped off into the lower corridor, and walked along past the kitchen. The kitchen door was open, and as I passed, I could see the chef frantically searching for something, lifting crates and moving pots. I leaned my head through the doorway and asked, Something the matter, cook? He didn't look over, focused on his searching, but replied, Rat strife! We've got rats! And they keep stealing bread rolls! Every night one goes missing and it's rats! I know it is! I left the cook to his searching, and continued walking through the corridor, round the corner, and out the front doors of the castle. The sun was shining, but a chill hung in the air. The people in the courtyard tending the plants or holding conversations, all walking around with hands in pockets and shoulders hunched up a little higher than usual. I could just see the faint trails of my breath whenever I exhaled. I scanned round the yard quickly and saw Hans, 
admiring the bushes he'd been replanting a few days earlier. I hopped down the stone steps of the castle entrance and walked over to him. Morning, Hans. He turned and greeted me with a smile, a heavy brown cloak wrapped around his body. Ah, good morning, Strife. I held out my hand with the iron room key. Horatio asked me to return this to you in the morning. Hans pushed the cape to the side as he reached out and took the key from me, and replied, Ah, brilliant, I'll make sure he gets it back. Then Hans added, Actually, have you seen the Duke this morning? That's all. I haven't seen him around anywhere. I shook my head and replied with, No, sorry, I just woke up. And I'm off to Varrock for the day, so I will see you in a few days' time. Hans slipped the key into his pocket and wrapped his cloak back around himself, bid me farewell with a friendly nod, and paced back across the chilled courtyard and toward the castle doors. I rubbed my hands together. My fingers were starting to chill. I'd only been outside for a few moments, and already I could feel the cold. The brilliant sun shining down warmed my face, but the chill air was seeping into my bones, and as I walked across the courtyard toward the grand portcullis, every shadow from every tree held a patch of cold air within it. Walking through the shadow of the portcullis drove home how chilly the day truly was, and as I emerged from the gates into Lumbridge Village, I could see the traders wrapped with furs and cloaks. Even the children playing had hats and scarves on. I recognised some of the scarves. They were the rainbow ones I'd seen Diango selling in Draenor. I guess they were indeed popular. My trousers and tunic weren't exactly up to the job of keeping me toasty warm. The mud and damp from the swamp had seeped into the hemming of the trousers and had started to fray them. My tunic was intact, but thin. Perfect for sunny, balmy afternoons, but too thin for anything less. I decided, along with my backpack, I'd go clothes shopping while I was in Varrock as well. I walked on, through Lumbridge Village and over the stone bridge that crossed the river. The ducks were hiding in the warmth of the reeds, and even the fishermen on the bank seemed to be huddled closer together for warmth. The rabble of goblins that was usually so irritating and arrogant had all but disappeared. I glanced around to see where they'd gone, and I could just make out the hideous green of goblin skin peering at me from the smashed window of a crumbled down building near the river's edge. Large spiders dotted around the building's ageing walls and an old tree rotting by the front door. It was a ruined shack, and the fishermen kept a good distance away. I walked north, following the gravel path as I had several days ago, the spiked metal fence to my right blocking me from the eastern desert. And as I walked, I again heard the familiar mooing of cowfields, and then, immediately, the familiar smell of a cowfield. The cows were huddled together in the chill air, and I could see gilly groats sat on the three-legged wooden stool, milking away. As I walked past, I raised a friendly hand. She looked up, saw me, and then returned to milking. Next to her stood the cow that I had tried to milk, the cow that had kicked me so squarely in the shoulder, the cow that had broken my shield. I glared at it. It glared back. My nemesis. I walked on, holding my stern stare, never breaking my piercing gaze, until the cow looked away first. Ha! I win. I returned to focusing on the journey. To my left was the chicken coop. The cold day had driven all the chickens inside, and I could see them sat in neat rows of the hutch. Through the window of the small farmhouse, I could see the farmer, sat on a large wooden rocking chair. He was staring out the window from the comfort of his warm kitchen. Our eyes met. I remember him throwing an egg at my face. 
He waved. I waved back. I walked on, following the path some more. It curved to the right, and on my right, a vast field. The mud ploughed into neat rows, soil tilled and chunky. I couldn't see anything planted, but a few birds flew down and pecked at the ground, eating whatever seeds or worms they saw. The cold of the day had added that thin layer of satisfying crunch to the topsoil. Not quite ice, but firm. Ahead of me, along the path, a field of grass trimmed into a park. Trees dotted around, a boulder I could see children climbing across, and a bench at an odd angle. I could see a well-cared-for farming patch closer to the riverbank, and hops sprouting out the ground from it and wafting in a cool breeze. The path continued to the northeast, and as I walked along, I could see the high walls of the city of Varrock raising in the distance. The path meandered through a gap in the wooden fence, then split to the left and right. To my right, over the east, I could just make out two distant buildings, one smaller and more academic-looking, the other a grand mansion, glowing with a faint magical aura. To my left, the west, the path continued snaking toward farmland. I could see a golden wheat field, and behind it, an imposing-looking building, fortified, built like a small castle on the river's edge. I couldn't remember which direction to take. The Duke had told me, but it had slipped my mind. Thankfully for me, a wooden signpost stuck proudly out of the ground, with four pointed planks nailed to it, pointing in various directions. I walked up to it and read, West to the Champions Guild and Varrock South Gate. Ah, that small castle-like building, that must be the Champions Guild. As I read the sign, I could see just to the north of me, a wooden cart lay broken, large enough to be drawn by two horses. It lay on one side, the wheel shattered and splintered. Apples and carrots had spilled from the angled cart body, and a barrel had rolled up against the inside. Walking round on the grass next to it was an agitated-looking man, a tan-coloured tunic and trousers, a soft flop cap of the same material, likely the cart driver. He seemed to be in a bit of bother, and I called over, Are you okay? He looked up and replied, Oh, hello. I'd love to chat right now, but I'm a bit busy. Perhaps you could come back and chat another time. I didn't want to bother the man. He was clearly having a bad day, and I wasn't much of a cart repairman. So I nodded politely, then turned to the left, and started following the western path, toward the Golden Wheatfield, toward the Champions Guild, and ultimately, towards Varrock. The path curved past the wheatfields on my left, the heavy blade of a metal plough dug into the earth down one end, past the sheep fields on my right, white bundles of fluff on legs pacing around, dipping their heads into a metal trough tied to the fence and casually eating away. Ahead, I could see the imposing gates of Varrock. Just outside them stood a guard tower, made of stacked stone bricks and heavy grey tiles sloping down the roof. A window, giving just a peak of an archer, stood inside. A fortified guard tower, outside the city limits. Varrock was already feeling more dangerous than Lumbridge. The path I was walking snaked its way toward the southern city gate, past the guard tower on the left and through the dense stone wall, but as I walked closer, I saw a strange sight on my right. Set back from the path and partly hidden by trees, I could make out several stone monuments, twice as tall as me, just as wide, carved in odd shapes and flourishes, spikes pointing toward the sky, 
The tree line obscured some, but I could just make out they formed a circle, eight of them from what I could count, and in the centre, a stone table, thick and solid, set into the ground. Around this odd altar were the shapes of people, clad all in black robes and hoods, pacing around. Some stood, hands on the central table. Some were kneeling by the outer stone pillars. A few were huddled together. I only imagined holding clandestined conversations. It was an odd sight. A fortified city to the north, and the guard tower watching over me from one side of the path, then having such an occult setup to the other side. I paid it no mind, and walked closer to the city, when I heard a call, a yell, coming over from the hooded gathering. I looked over, and one of the men had walked toward me, through the tree line, and was pointing at me. Had I stared too long, or wandered too close to something I shouldn't have? My experiences with wizards so far had always started with me offending them in one way or another, and my streak, it seemed, continued. The robed man took a step away from the gathering, toward me, and raised his hands in front of him. A faint blue glow, growing more intense, swirls of energy from the air seemed to gather at his fingertips and merge into a solid orb of energy, growing larger and larger. Slowly as the orb grew, larger now than his hands, I could see lashing blue light streaking across his face, and it showed me he was gritting his teeth and struggling to hold the bundled energy together. It was a spell. I didn't know what or why he was casting it at me, but I'd clearly offended him, and this was the price. The blue energy expanded out, imploded, congealed into a tight ball, and as the dark wizard pulled his hand back ready to launch it toward me, I heard a heavy snap of a bowstring, and then a deep, powerful thud. An arrow had flown from the guard tower and buried itself deep in the ground next to the wizard, just barely missing his head. The wizard froze. Then, with arms still held back and magical energy still pulsing, he shook his hand and the blue spell faded away into the ether. The dark wizard brought his arm back and straightened up, still scowling at me. He slowly turned his head and walked away, through the tree line and back toward the strange meeting. I looked up toward the guard tower. Through the small window in the strong brickwork, I could make out the face of a guard staring down at me. Clearly he'd seen one too many travellers fall prey to the anger of the dark wizards across the way. I looked over at the arrow stuck in the ground. It was buried in up to the feathers, and the arrow shaft was as thick as my thumb. The bow that fired it must be as thick as an ox leg, and the man who pulled the string the strongest one. If that arrow had found its target and hit the wizard's skull, it would have exploded. Blood, brain and hair would have flown over the city walls, his body likely ragdolled up into the air. In my still slightly shocked state, I tried to make a joke, eased the nervous tension I was feeling, and playfully shouted up to the guard, You missed! The guard's eyes never left mine, and holding the intense stare, he drew another arrow, notched it, pulled the immense bowstring back, and loosed it. It screamed through the air, and split the first arrow right down the centre, piercing into the ground, sending chunks of mud and splintered arrow everywhere. It was a perfect shot, and he never once even looked. He didn't miss. It was a warning. I looked down at the ground, 
and realised that joking around with a trained guard, who'd likely just saved my life, wasn't the best idea. Keeping my gaze down, I hurried along the path toward the southern city gates. More guards stood around the entrance to the city, some standing to attention, some leaning against the outer wall of a small building, a brick guard hut built into the main wall, each of them wearing immaculate grey chainmail with yellow belts and neck guards. Each carried a razor-sharp longsword and a solid yellow kite shield, proudly displaying the sigil of the Varrock guards, a grey X. As I walked into the city, each guard eyed me with suspicion. My tattered clothes and backpack probably weren't helping. As I walked into the massive city, the noise of people, the trundle of carts, the distant yelling of market traders, people living and working, the cacophony of city life filled the air, the smells mixing. Fresh bread, old clothes, hot metal and cold beer, all combining on the breeze and carried by each person as they walked around. The buildings both old and new, brick mixing with wood, wooden makeshift fences marking off tufts of unkempt grass. Children were running around among the streets playing tag, and as I walked down the main path, admiring the sight, a mangy stray dog bounded up to me, barking and yapping for attention, or food, likely both. I didn't have anything on me, so I shrugged and walked on. The dog followed for a few paces, until finally realising I wasn't the meal ticket he'd hoped for, and bounded off into a side street. A few more paces of walking amongst the crowd, and a voice came from the floor beside me. Spare some change, Gov! The beggar was sitting cross-legged in the grass, just off the main path, leaning against the wall of a grey building. He wore ripped blue trousers, a badly fit dark green top, and his wild red hair curled out from under a dirtied cap. I had a few coins on me, but not many. I had planned to shop for a change of clothes and a new bag, maybe a sword. I suppose a single coin couldn't hurt. I reached into my pocket, into my coin pouch, and flipped a single coin through the air toward the red-headed young man. He caught it and stood up and replied with a genuine, Oh, thank you kindly, sir. I smiled and offered a polite, It's no problem. As the beggar walked away down a nearby alley. I walked onward, following the main path into the city proper. Above me, clothes hung, draped from ageing twine, lashed from roof to roof. I could see people hanging precariously out of windows and clipping shirts and blouses to these bits of twine with long, hooked sticks. I wondered if the wind ever blew them to the streets below. As I was looking up at the crossing lines of drying clothes, I almost tripped as the stray dog ran between my legs again, gazing up at me as if to say, it's been a minute. Do you have food now? I kept walking, and the dog kept pace with me by my side. I offered a sincere, Sorry, doggy. Still got nothing for you. He either understood and didn't care, or didn't understand, as he happily kept pace and bounded along beside me, his grey matted fur just covering patches of red, raw skin, and the buzz of flies faintly droning around him. Clearly a stray, but honestly, with my clothes in the state they were, we looked about the same. I walked on and drew level with a grand shop on my left. Green glass windows with thin black metal strips running through them, twisted into a diamond pattern. Above the door hung a well-painted wooden sword, and through the open doorway 
I could see cabinets of blades all standing on end, leaning against the back wall, thin single swords, large thick bladed scimitars, and a pair of enormous warhammers hanging next to each other, solid metal heads pulling toward the floor. The hooks they were hanging on had bent and pulled over the years. I could see cracks in the plaster from the sheer weight of the things. While I was admiring the selection of weapons in the shop, the stray dog had sat down on the floor next to me and was scratching behind its ear with an aging paw. I brushed the dust off my tunic, at least tried to look presentable, and stepped inside the shop. The shopkeeper looked up and over at me from behind a glass display case he was leaning on. He took in my appearance and offered a cautious, Welcome! What can I do for you? I glanced around. The case he was standing by filled with daggers, some straight, some curved, a thin spiked mace lying sideways along the top. I took in the wares for sale and replied, Just a simple basic sword, really. The shopkeeper straightened up and walked around the case and over to a barrel of simpler looking blades in the corner. He asked, Iron or steel? I thought and replied, Um, I'm not sure. What's the price difference? Without breaking stride, he replied with, Iron's 140, steel's 500. That was vastly more money than I had. Varrock prices were a world away from Lumbridge. I suppose I was naive to think a small, sleepy village would prepare me for life outside, especially in a major trading city. I thought a little, and could only muster a disappointed... Oh. The shopkeeper was standing by the barrel of blades, impatiently waiting for a more complex response, an excuse about money, an attempt at haggling maybe. I didn't have an excuse, and I've never been the best negotiator, so with a defeated sigh, I turned about and walked out of the weapon shop. The dog hadn't moved, and when it saw me, stood up and walked over, looking eagerly up, awaiting our next exciting adventure together. Maybe we'd walk to another shop I couldn't afford. Maybe we'd sit on the grass for a bit. As it stared up at me, all the people milled around me, moving from shop to shop and job to job, and yet I felt remarkably alone. Despite the crowd, in a larger city no one smiled, no one waved. Lumbridge was small, but at least it was friendly. Varrock had, in five minutes, already made me feel very insignificant and very poor. The stray dog didn't seem to mind though, and was still looking up at me, tongue still hanging out, panting softly. I walked further north along the city streets. More clothes fluttered above me, more people, more serious faces and frowning traders. In the distance, I could see the central city square along the path ahead of me. A grand water feature in the middle, four stone statues standing proudly in a circle above the mass of people with water running from below them through stone troughs into a sparkling pool. As I walked along and toward it, I passed another shop on my left, the same green glass and grey brick as before, but hanging above this doorway, a bobbin of spooled thread. It was a dressmaker's shop. Through the windows and open door, I could see rows of dressmaker's mannequins with fabric of all colours draped over them, some in long rolls, some small squares, a brilliant pink carpet covered the floor and a wooden work desk flooded with needles and pins, scissors, thread and fabric. A clothes shop, fantastic. I eagerly stepped inside. The shop smelled of fresh fabric, 
and every surface had thin tendrils of cotton or a stray thread of silk clinging to it. In the corner was an old woman sat on a rocking chair with knitting needles quickly clacking together, the trail end of a pink scarf slowly getting longer hanging down her side to the floor. Bolts of cloth stood around the room, leaning haphazardly against each other. Some had fell over and were unrolling, spilling onto the worn carpet, and around the wooden work desk a woman paced back and forth, measuring strips of fabric then expertly cutting them quickly. She raised her head and looked over at me. Welcome to Thessalia's Threads, how can I help you? I took in the clothes hanging around the room, bright blue shirts, red tunics, black trousers, a brown leather crafter's apron and a white cook's apron. Then I looked down at the tatty clothes hanging on me and I replied, I think I need a new everything. Thessalia laughed and took in the sorry state of me, then offered a genuine, I'd agree. She put the fabric and scissors down and walked over to me. I placed my pack on the floor, then stood as she instructed, legs slightly apart and arms stretched out to my side, while she moved around me, stretching out a measuring tape and muttering numbers to herself. I'd have to write all this information down to remember it, but she was clearly a professional, and each measurement found a place somewhere in her memory and stayed there. Finally, after wrapping and pulling the measuring tape round all of me, she walked back over to the desk and started cutting. I raised my voice in question. You don't know what colour or style I want. She smiled and kept cutting, curtly replying with, Black and hard wearing. You're an adventurer. You don't live local and you'll want pockets. Lots of pockets. You've got a large backpack but nothing in it, so you're planning on a long journey, but you haven't been on one yet. Plus, black is easy to get stains out of, and blood won't show as much. I just stood and watched her work. She was right. Black fabric would be practical, and pockets were always useful. She added, It'll take me a while. Come back later this evening. Again, confused, I asked, You haven't even told me how much this will cost. She kept working, cutting and measuring, recutting, and simply said, Just make sure he's fed. I was confused, make sure who's fed. I went to ask again, when I heard a faint yelp from behind me, outside the shop. The dog was still waiting for me. Thessalia worked away, and the dog sat calmly. I chuckled to myself. Big city, small world. I walked out the shop and looked down at the mangy mutt, looking back up at me, hopefully. I still had Cedrador's letter to deliver to Aubrey. I'd have to make my way over to his rune shop, wherever that was. But first, I looked down at the dog and said, All right, come on then, let's get you a bite to eat. Thank you for listening to episode 6 of Trouble and Strife, a RuneScape audio drama. I hope you're enjoying the adventure. These episodes are supported by listeners like you. If you'd like to become a patron of the show, then click the link below or head over to patreon.com forward slash Josh Strife Hayes. Twitch, Twitter and Discord links are all below and I'd love to hear from you. In the next episode, we'll discover the secret of the talisman and solve the rune mystery.